Be prepared to compromise, argues the president of COP28, Sultan Al-Jebba. What he doesn't realise is that compromise is a human quality. It has nothing to do with nature. Nature simply doesn't compromise. What we're dealing with now is nature disrupted by human behaviour. Yes, welcome to this latest episode of Climate Conversations. I'm your host, Robert McLean. It's so great to have you along. This podcast is assembled here in Shepparton, in northern Victoria, Australia, on the lands of the Yorta Yorta people. Yes, the stolen lands of the Yorta Yorta people. I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Now let's listen to this report from Radio National's breakfast program, where we hear about the plea for compromise. Radio National is a part of the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. Let's have a listen now. Be prepared to compromise. That's the message from COP28 President Sultan Al-Jabba as talks at the climate conference enter the final few days. The Sultan convened all member countries as major fossil fuel producing nations, including Russia and Saudi Arabia, refused to back attempts to reach agreement on a plan to phase down their use. At least 80 of the almost 200 countries at the talks are demanding that COP28 makes a clear call for an eventual end to fossil fuel use. Patrick Greenfield is a nature reporter with The Guardian UK. He's in Dubai for COP28 and joined me a short time ago. Patrick Greenfield joins us. Welcome. Hello from, from Dubai. How are you? Good, thank you. Now, Russia and Saudi Arabia want to focus on reducing emissions, but phasing down the use of fossil fuels is key to that, of course. Will these talks be considered a failure if there's no agreement on that key thing? I think in short, yes. Really, tonight here in, in Dubai, it's the calm before the storm. The The presidency, the UAE, have put a lot of emphasis on this being a historic COP. And really, it will only be a historic COP if we get language on fossil fuels. It's never happened before in the near 30-year history of this process. And there's really an expectation here in Dubai that it that it has to happen in some way. What that exact language looks like, well, well, we'll find out. Overnight here, I think that there will be a presidency text dropping. So in non-technical language, what that means is the UAE have listened to all of the opinions from every country around the world on this very important subject. And they'll try and bring that together in a single agreement. And that's what we'll all be looking out for including the Russians, including the Saudis, including Australia. Everyone will be pouring over that text tomorrow to see whether they can agree with it or not. So what does compromise look like then in the eyes of Sultan al-Jabba? Gosh, that is, that's the very serious question, right? The multi-billion, multi-trillion dollar question for, for the fossil fuel economies around the world. I think that that's what's going to be very interesting to play out in um, to, uh, as we, we watch what happens in Dubai. It's scheduled to finish on Tuesday, but everybody's expecting this to drag on hours, maybe even days, um, because it's such a contentious subject. And there, there are quite a few options here for for the Sultan um, Al, Al, Al Jabba. He he could maybe, when we're all very exhausted, try forcing some text through, even when there are objections. But I, I think really. Um, this, this is being done in good faith by consensus. Every country in the world really has to, has to agree to this, um, and and that that that's the the needle that need, that needs threading with this language. OPEC has intervened in these talks for the first time. It's been described as a sign of panic on their part. 
Is that how you see it? Yes, they, they seem rattled. Uh, so for, for listeners, um, a couple of days ago now, a letter was published by, um, or, or a private letter was, was revealed for, to, to OPEC states, warning that really the end of the fossil fuel era could begin here in Dubai. Uh, and, and that would be terrible news for oil and gas producers. And that's particularly awkward for the UAE because it is a member of OPEC. Look, uh, the oil and gas majors, lobbyists have long engaged in this process right from the very start. It's, it's been a threat to the, the their industry. And ultimately, I think everybody acknowledges here in Dubai that the end of the fossil fuel era will come. It's just a question of when and how and whether that's a managed transition or, or, or chaotic um, and, and how hot, how warm will average temperatures be um, when that happens and, and what kind of extreme weather we'll, we'll be living with, right? The quicker we do this, the quicker we, we bite the bullet and find a way to live prosperously in a different way, but away from coal, gas and oil, I think it will be easier for everyone. China's top climate envoy says uh, these talks have been the hardest of his career. Is fossil fuel use the, the really only major point of contention or are there other issues? Well, this COP started very positively because there was agreement on a loss and damage fund um, between countries. The reason why that's so important is this had been something that the developing world had asked for for a very long time and there'd been no movement on it. Uh, I was in Egypt last year where the fund was agreed to be created and it was it was tortuous. And within the, the first day or so of COP, that was funded, sorted, done. Thank you very much. Let's crack on with everything else uh, that, that we have to sort out. And, and, and it really did give a kind of uh, important push. Uh, that's money that will go to some of the poorest countries in the world when they're hit by, by climate disasters and help, help them to rebuild. So it's really, really vital. And crucially, it rebuilds trust with, with the developing world, which is something that had been lacking in this process. You'll remember that uh, developed countries, rich countries, had failed to to meet the target on a billion dollars of, uh, sorry, hundred billion dollars of, of, of climate finance, um, and and that had really angered many. That's been met. The loss and damage fund's been met. So we've had several days now to focus on this big issue of fossil fuel phase out, in the context of something called the global stock take, which is. Two things, really, the report card on, on, on how we're doing and the direction of travel to where we need to go next, right, to, to keep global heating as, as low as possible. And that's going to be answering questions like, what's the role of fossil fuels in that? What's the role of forests? How do we need to be decarbonizing and changing our economies? And how does that apply to every single country on the earth, right? Rich and poor who are at different stages and everything in between. Um, so there's, there's still a lot to do here in Dubai. How do you right now, as we go to air, see the summit ending? Do you see it uh, as likely to be a success or or can you see a possible late failure? Gosh, well, I'm, I'm looking out at the Dubai skyline right now and I, right now, and I think tonight's going to be my, my last good sleep. I, I personally expect this to, to drag on as I think my colleagues do. These things never finish on time in recent history. And whatever language we get on fossil fuels, if we get it, will be historic, but it will be hard fought. Uh, and, and I expect that really to be very contentious. I, I don't think that um, the Saudis and, and India and, and the Chinese even will, will go quietly on, on this. We're, we're going to need 
Um, there's going to need to be a big diplomatic push if we're going to get the politics to catch up with the science on this. Um, so, so yeah, I'll, I'll be bringing my, my pyjamas to the conference centre from tomorrow, I think. Patrick Greenfield, Nature Reporter with The Guardian UK. As a contributing editor with Rolling Stone, Jeff Goodell has written a number of exceptional books that help us better understand the climate crisis. The latest of those is Heat, Life and Death on a Scorched Planet. And a few years ago, when Barack Obama was still the President of the US, Jeff spent three days travelling to Alaska with the President to find out what he really thought about the climate crisis. Here is the audio from a film clip on Jeff's website. And you'll find a link for that in the show notes. Let's have a listen now to that audio. Hi, I'm Jeff Goodell. I'm a contributing editor at Rolling Stone. And for this exclusive Rolling Stone report, we were able to travel with President Obama to Alaska for a historic three-day visit to talk about climate change. President Obama's trip to Alaska marked the last big push of his presidency. The last big thing he wants to accomplish, I think, is to get something done on climate. The world is really looking towards him for leadership on this. I think that he understands that. I think that climate is the one big thing where he hasn't done what he wanted to do. My job up here, the whole point of this trip, is to sound the alarm. It's not often that the president devotes as much time as he gave to us, which was over an hour. It was an actual conversation. I really got to drill down with him into uh, a single issue and his own personal feelings about the loss that climate change is bringing to the natural world. Doesn't it scare the shit out of you sometimes? Part of my job is to read stuff that terrifies me all the time. <laughs> That's true. A few years ago, I was talking to Al Gore, and he said that anyone who really cares about climate change has had what he called an oh shit moment, which is a moment when you realize that this is not just a problem of pollution, that this is not just a regional problem, that this is a collapse of the operating system of the entire Earth. What was your oh shit moment? Well, I did grow up in Hawaii. There are coral reefs in Hawaii that, when I was growing up, were uh, lush and full of fish that now, if you go back, are not. Part of the reason why I wanted to take this trip was to start making it a little more visceral. This area is changing. And so it raised the question, if the American people see the President of the United States standing on top of a melting glacier, and telling them the world is in trouble, will they care? Behind me is one of the most visited glaciers in Alaska. Uh, it is spectacular. Uh, we've been able to spend the day out here just learning more about how the glaciers are receding. Each time I get a scientific report, uh, I'm made aware that we have less time than we thought, that this is happening faster than we thought. You wish that the political system could process an issue like this just based on data and science, but people have to see it and feel it and breathe it. Um, and that makes things a little scarier because uh, it indicates that we're already losing a lot of time.
I've come here today as the leader of the world's largest economy and its second largest emitter to say that the United States recognizes our role in creating this problem and we embrace our responsibility to help solve it. And I believe we can solve it. This is not simply a danger to be avoided, this is an opportunity to be seized. If we were to abandon our course of action, if we stop trying to build a clean energy economy, if we do nothing to keep glaciers from melting faster and oceans from rising faster and forests from burning faster and storms from growing stronger, we will condemn our children to a planet beyond their capacity to repair. Submerged countries, abandoned cities, fields no longer growing. On this issue of all issues, there is such a thing as being too late. When it comes to talking about climate change, Alaska sort of really is the belly of the beast. I mean, Alaska is facing numerous challenges as a result of a warming planet. And it's really the, um, the, one of the really most alarming sites where you can see in real time what's happening as our planet warms. You can fly over the lakes in the on the North Slope and see big bubbles of methane coming up. You can walk along roads and see them buckling as the permafrost melts and they collapse. You can visit villages on the coast and see them falling and literally falling into the sea. It's very powerful. On my way here, I flew over the island of Kivalina, which is already receding into the ocean. You know, waves sweep across the entire island at times. And for many of those Alaskans, it's no longer a question of if they're going to relocate, but when. This village is a barrier island ready to fall into the ocean. I heard, we need to move about 14 years. We need to move, we need to move. They never make it happen. Climate change is really, really a big problem. climate change and funding. <laughs> and think about it. If another country threatened to wipe out an American town, we'd do everything in our power to protect it. Well, climate change poses the same threat right now. Our democratic process is painfully slow. Historically, politics catch up when the public cares deeply. The American people have to feel the same urgency that I do. It's understandable that they don't, because it, it feels abstract to people. This is the beginning of a very long war and a very long fight, and that, you know, President Obama is just the first of many presidents that are gonna to have to deal directly with this. I think that this era that we're in now of is climate change happening, is it not, is it real, is it not, who's a climate denier, who's not, is soon gonna seem very quaint. And that in the f very near future, every American president is going to have to be a climate warrior of some sort because that is going to become the dominant story of our time. As the president and I walked along the seawall, I took the opportunity to ask him a few more questions that were on my mind. I really wanted to know how he decides how much truth to tell the American people about climate change versus how much he feels it's his job to inspire people 
and to perhaps withhold some of the truth because if they knew what was we were really facing, that might be too much to bear. I, I do what I can do. Uh, right. And as much as I can do. Right. And you know what I don't want to do is get paralyzed uh, by the magnitude of the thing. And what I don't want is for people to get paralyzed uh, thinking that somehow this is all out of our control. Um, you know, I'm, uh, I'm a big believer in uh, that the human, you know, the human uh, imagination can, can solve problems. We're getting to the point now where we can start attaching dollars and cents to climate change in a way that might not have been true a decade ago. And that's an opportunity. Potentially, it gives us uh, the chance to build the kind of political consensus, not just in America, but internationally, uh, that's going to be necessary to solve this enormous problem. I think about Malia and Sasha a lot. Uh, I think about their children a lot. I want to make sure my kids are seeing the same things that I saw. You know, it's probably less of a function of being president, more of a function of age, <laughs> that you start <laughs> thinking about what you're leaving behind. Mm -hmm. The world is always changing. There's some things that I've experienced and seen that I suspect my grandchildren won't, and that's a sad thing. Um, but the world's full of wonders, and. I figure that we still have time to save most of them. Now we have the audio from a story in the Melbourne Age by Nico Marley. The headline for the story is Coalition MP talks up triple nuclear option at COP28. Dubai. A coalition government would sign a pledge to triple nuclear energy output when attending its first COP global climate talks after being re-elected and overturn the Australian nuclear energy moratorium. Opposition climate change and energy spokesman Ted O'Brien promised during a session at the World Climate Talks in Dubai on Saturday. Today I am happy to announce that a re-elected coalition government will, at its first COP after being returned to office, sign the nuclear pledge and return Australia to where it belongs, standing alongside its friends and allies, he said. The nuclear pledge coming out of this COP to triple the world's nuclear capacity should be a wake-up call for Australia. No nuclear, no net zero, he said at one point. The pledge, which has been signed by 22 nations including the United States, is one of a series of side agreements made at the COP, along with a pledge by 118 nations to triple the world's renewable energy capacity, which Australia has signed at this COP. Asked if he backed the latter pledge, O'Brien said he did not support Australia tripling its renewables capacity. O'Brien is among a group of coalition MPs who were brought to COP28 by the group Coalition for Conservation, led by Christina Talico which supports developing nuclear energy to cut emissions. The group includes Federal Coalition MP Kevin Hogan and Senators Bridget McKenzie, Andrew Bragg and Dean Smith. In a sign of just how politically divisive nuclear power can be, a second group of Coalition MPs at COP was brought by a second group focused on encouraging conservative politicians to embrace climate action, Anna Rose. That group includes Federal MP and Opposition Minister Paul Fletcher, Senator Maria Kovacic, 
New South Wales Opposition Ministers Matt Keane and Kelly Sloan, New South Wales Upper House Member Jackie Munro, and Queensland Opposition Ministers Sam O'Connor and Steve Minikin. Keane, the former New South Wales Energy Minister known for aggressive action on climate change, attended O'Brien's presentation. I was thrilled to see Ted O'Brien acknowledge the need to get to net zero before 2050, and that is his motivation for the address, Keane said. However, he said it would not be possible to deploy nuclear power in Australia in time to replace ageing coal power plants. Also observing the session was clean energy investor and convener of the Climate 200 Group, which backs Teal independent candidates, Simon Holmes Accord. Holmes Accord said while he backed the Global Pledge, he does not believe nuclear has a role in Australia's transition because it is so expensive and takes so long to deploy. It is a pretty easy pledge to sign because three times zero is zero, he said, referring to the current state of Australia's nuclear energy sector. As Ted O'Brien said in his presentation today, 80% of Australian coal, power, will be out of the grid by 2035. There is no conceivable world in which Australia has any nuclear operating by 2040, which means it won't be playing a role in the decarbonisation of the grid. It might play a role in the decarbonisation in other parts of the economy after 2040, but it will be competing against other technologies. Holmes Accord also dismissed the suggestion that small modular reactors might fill a gap in Australia's near-term energy needs. If we wanted to, we could throw a trillion dollars at SMRs today, and they still would not be operational by 2040, he said. Speaking a day earlier in Dubai, Climate Change and Energy Minister Chris Bowen dismissed the opposition's nuclear advocacy as a distraction. Nuclear energy is not involved in any multilateral conversations, here, Bowen said. It's a pipe dream wrapped in a fantasy accompanied by an illusion. Next we have a story from The Intercept. The headline for the story is The Rise and Rollout of AOC's Green New Deal. The story by Ryan Grimm begins. Not long after Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez won her shock 2018 primary, Sikhat Chakrabarti and Corbin Trent ventured to Washington, D.C. to scope things out. Both had started volunteers on the first Bernie Sanders campaign, worked their way up the skeleton crew, then left to found what became Justice Democrats, and then threw themselves full-time into electing Ocasio-Cortez in her primary campaign against Republican Joe Crowley. Now, they had met her to Washington as AOC's Chief of Staff and Communications Director, and the first question everyone they ran into asked them was the same. A question of both curiosity and a sense of competitiveness. What committees does Ocasio-Cortez want to be on? Yes, we've reached the end of this episode of Climate Conversations. Now, please don't forget to check out the show notes as there'll be links in there to which I've been able to get to. Now, please don't forget to follow this podcast because if you do that, you'll be alerted every time I publish a new episode. Also, I'd love to hear from you. I want to know what you think of this podcast. Is it good or bad? Don't hold back. Let me know. And you can contact me via email at number 7 at iCloud.com. And please share this with your friends. In fact, I almost insist that you share this with your friends because it's important that we all know as much as we possibly can about the climate crisis, how we should respond, who we should be talking to, and what we should be saying. So until we talk again, please take care, stay safe, 
and please be kind, for everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. And personally, I want you to take care and to stay safe. <laughs>